Evening, everyone. Tonight's Bible reading is from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. Therefore, since through God's mercy we had this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. I mean, if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers, so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Come, gather round people, wherever you roam, and admit that the waters around you have grown, and accept it that soon you'll be drenched to the bone. If your time is worth saving, and you'd better start swimming, or you'll sink like a stone. For the times, they are changing. I was thinking about this last night, and I was trying to think about change. I was thinking, what's that Bob Dylan song that's about change? And it never occurred to me that actually it is the times are changing. And the times, by the way, they are changing. Um, Written by Bob Dylan at the end of 1963, it was to become very quickly an anthem for that generation of the 60s and early 70s. In that time where there was massive cultural revolution that hit across every level of society, politically, socially, sexually, everything was impacted. Peace, love and mung beans and all the rest of it, out with the old and in with the new. And Bob Dylan seemed to hit a nerve. Come mothers and fathers throughout the land and don't criticise what you can't understand. Your sons and your daughters are beyond your command. Your old road is rapidly ageing. Please get out of the new one if you can't lend a hand because times, they are a-changing. And for the last month, we've been talking about change, a number of reforms and things that will shift here at NBC. And I wonder... If at any point it sounded like out with the old and in with the new, some kind of revolution, a cultural revolution perhaps. And if that's the case, then I want to say at one level that ought horrify you. Uh, Not horrify you because you want to hold on to the way that we've always done things and it needs to stay that way because that's the way we do things, although at times I've got to admit I feel like that. And not because it sounds like we're ignoring all that is good that has gone before. And now we're just letting, I don't know, the lunatics run the asylum. It's probably not the best analogy, but (laughs) kind of probably does fit a bit, right? But because the church is the thing that Jesus established. It's not the thing that you chuck out and reform and adjust. It's rock solid, isn't it? You just think about Jesus' words to Matthew. No, Jesus' words to Peter in Matthew, the Gospel of. Chapter 16, there's a scene where Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? They give different answers. And then Peter says in verse 16 of chapter 16, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. 
And Jesus then says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you, Peter, changes his name, which means Rocky, Rocky one, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. In fact, you move on through the New Testament, you see this enduring thing about the church, the bride of Christ that will remain until Christ returns. So, see, let me be very clear. Any reforms that we make to church, to how we do church, is not about redefining what the church is foundationally and what it's meant to do as Jesus has commanded. In fact, it's Jesus and his word that defines that. And we don't have permission or liberty to muck around with that. It is then to ask then, though, how do we understand what it is to be the church and to do the things that the church is to do as it gathers and scatters? What is it to take those biblical principles and apply them now? Those things that were spoken and conveyed uh, in the experience of a first century culture and people, what did it mean for them and how does it apply to our place and our time? Of course, that's always the challenge whenever you're thinking about how you understand God's word to us. You take the, the that was then to the this is now and you've got to jump that gap to the hermeneutical leap. And sometimes you make great errors when you do that. But to do that wisely is to understand how you make the journey, holding fast to the things that God has established and understanding those things that would best fit and best be applied in the time and place where we live. And that that will look vastly different if you're living in first century Palestine or in Africa today or if you're living 500 years ago in England or it will shift and change over time. See, as we do church, we've been asking the question as a leadership, what does it mean for this gathering that we do to be on purpose? The title for this church talk has been that the gathering is purposeful. Uh, we, we went backwards and forwards on the best way to name this section that we wanted to talk about. Because we wanted to identify along with the other principles and the values that undergird the way that we think about how we do church, being word-centred and participatory and all the other things we've discussed over the last three or four weeks, to be able to convey the idea that the church as we gather is to be on purpose, it's to be relevant in the culture in which it finds itself. But when you talk about relevance, it can almost sound that you're at the whim of pleasing the world around you and so maybe that's not the best word to use. But purposeful, that's kind of got baggage and that's a bit tricky to understand what it means. Perhaps another word and a better way of describing it would be that the church as we gather is to be deliberate. Deliberate in the way that we do what we are called to do. But just to think about that for a moment... That, that, that as we meet as the people of God in any place, it's for a purpose that God has given us. It's deliberate. He's got some intentions for us. This week I was involved in a Q&A panel and one of the kids uh, that was asking questions asked this question, does God has a, have a purpose for my life? And as um, the panel was seeking to answer that question, 
you can understand all of the questions perhaps that are behind that question about what does God want to say about the study that I'm doing or the person that I'm dating or my future and what's the, what's the trajectory? Does God have it all mapped out and purposed and written? And, and yet as we were thinking about that answer, we arrived very quickly at one of the clearest articulations of what God's purpose is for your life. Every one of you. You find it in Romans 8 and verse 28 and 29, where Paul says this, We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. He has a purpose. And God's in his purpose working all things to achieve that purpose. Well, what's the purpose? Next verse. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Does God have a purpose for your life? Yes, that you would be conformed to the image of his son, that you would grow ever increasingly in Christ's likeness. It's actually the work of the spirit in your life. The fruit of the spirit is to produce that Christ likeness in you. That's God's purpose. And he's working all things to achieve that purpose, conformed to the image of his son. Uh, then if you then come to the topic that I've been thinking about through this week, which is about does God have a purpose for his church? I want to suggest that it's the same answer. In fact, you find that throughout the New Testament, in, that the church, not just individually, but collectively as the bride of Christ, as his dwelling place where he is manifest in his people, is the same that we would be increasingly conformed to the image of son of his son so that he might be first born among many brothers and sisters that the thing that Jesus has started would continue on and people would see transformed lives and transformed gatherings communities that reflect that very purpose now of course the church fulfills that purpose in a number of ways and Jesus actually is pretty clear on this subject when he addresses his disciples, one way you can think about this quite simplistically is to take just two areas where Jesus gives the great commandment and he gives the great commission. And in the great commandment, in Matthew chapter 22, they are asking which of the laws they should keep in order to be obedient. And Jesus replies to them in verse 37 of Matthew 22, you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. To his disciples, as they meet with him, they say, what do we have to do? He says to them, love. Love God. That we exist to give him glory, to worship him and magnify him. Then Jesus goes on to say in the very next verse, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And all of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Love of God and love of neighbor. And love of others. That we that have been so loved by God, that respond with worship and adulation to him, are called to exhibit that same love that we've received to others. And so as God's people, we're to love and to care and to enjoy genuine fellowship with one another. Love God, love one another. The Great Commission builds on this because Jesus meets with his disciples before he returns to the Father and he speaks about all of the authority that he has received and is then instructing them as to how they would go on in their following of him. 
And in verse 9 of Matthew 28, he says, verse 19, sorry, of Matthew 28, he says, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Love God, love one another, be about the making of disciples, which is about twofold activity, and we've spoken about this at length, about making disciples of those that are not yet followers of him through the work of evangelism, of proclaiming the truth about the word. And for those that have come to faith, see that they might be continually disciples and growing and edified, built up in their faith, and that they might also be baptised, which is all about this idea of identification, that, that they are, we are brought together and, and, and members in membership of the body of Christ, distinctly different from the world from which we have been brought out of, if you like, and taught to obey, that to know what God's word and his will is, that we might understand his plan and what it means for us to live for him and to serve him, to live out that obedience. But each of those three things, making of disciples, baptizing and teaching to obey, are all preceded by this command which says, go, go and make disciples, baptizing and teaching. That the, the disciples of Jesus aren't meant to remain and aren't stagnant, they're, they're to scatter. This gathering is a gathering that is scattered throughout the community and the streets and the markets and the university campuses and the places of employment and families. And See, we meet collectively to worship, to love and to care, to grow as disciples, to be equipped to obey and to serve and to go, to be on God's mission, to return and engage with our community and world. And for any of the changes and reforms that we've spoken about over the last month, we will always be doing that. The foundational purposes that God has given his church will be lived out in this place, obedient to the rock that he has established that we would build upon that apostolic tradition. That is to be reminded that the church is not, then, a fortress that builds itself up and protects itself so that it is kept from the world, but recognising that we're in the world. We're moving about it all the time. And nor is it built in that way to keep the world out. But, of course, that's the great problem, that the world infects the church in the way that we think. But rather we are to be like a city on a hill, a light, to be, to be in the world but not of it. So it means we've always got to discern and be careful that the church is not about entertainment, but that the church is about engagement. And, and, and that's what it is to be on purpose in the time and the place in which we live. Because I think that's the challenge. It's certainly been the challenge that's been on our mind for many years to ask the question, how do we that have been placed here at this time, in this place, living on the northern beaches of Sydney in 2019 and beyond, be the church, be that gathering that is on purpose, 
that's deliberate. And we recognise that that does mean that we need to be culturally aware and responsive to the changes in our culture around us. A few weeks ago, I described that as having a finger on the pulse and all the while having our hand gripped by Jesus and his word. Billy Graham used to say that you preach best when you have the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. That you understand the the stories of this world, the interests of this world, the things that are taking place and occupying people and where their securities and hopes and dreams and all of those things lie. And with that comes thoughts about how you engage with the culture around you. And we think that that is best aided if you think strategically and you plan and you recognise that it will adapt over time and look different in different contexts, as it does today. In various parts of Sydney, across this country, across the globe, the expression of the church, faithful to the apostolic tradition, will look vastly different in different cultures. And we recognise that our culture around us is changing. Of course, sometimes we're a bit at odds with the idea of being strategic and methodology and wondering whether or not that's hampering what what God would have us do. And I read a nice little quote that often Christians will think that there's a, a battle between methodology versus sanctified cluelessness. And we don't want to be in that category of sanctified cluelessness. But to actually think about the culture in which we live and the time that is here and now and what it means to hold fast to the gospel and to proclaim that. In fact, you see that is exactly the way that the first and early church began. That it understood that it was going to look different if you were proclaiming things in the synagogue to a Jewish group or if you're in another place to another group. So in Acts chapter 17, you find Paul and he's in Athens. He's walked around and as he goes around, he recognises a very different cultural context. And so rather than reasoning from the scriptures as he does at other times, he will come into that space in the Areopagus with the Athenian learned and teach them from their own poets and philosophers and then take them to the resurrection of Jesus and call them to repent for a time is coming and is near. And that activity that he's doing is called contextualization. He understands the group, he changes his practice, but not his content. So that the message is secure, but his method is malleable. In in fact, in the passage that Tom read for us before, you actually see this at work in Paul. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul talks about this ministry that he has received. And he says, "I, I want to tell you what we don't do even in the culture around us, a culture that in Corinth looked like it was dominant and looked like it wanted nothing to do with this small little uprising called Christianity. He says, we do not lose heart. We understand the one that we serve and we follow and so we do not lose heart. Rather, we've renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception and nor do we distort the word of God. Here's this thing that we hold fast to and is fixed and we don't distort that. We don't bait and switch. We don't do the same kind of things that as culturally acceptable around us. We have a a, a different paradigm. And so what do we do? On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly. We take the truth about God and we set it before people. 
plainly, in a way that's understandable. We set it forth to them and we commend. And now you expect him to say, we commend that truth to them. We commend, we commend Jesus to them. But notice what he says. He says, we commend ourselves to them, to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Why? Because the truth that he's holding out plainly is a truth that has transformed the disciple. And so he says, if you want to know if this is true, I'll tell you and show you that it works. We commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Now, even if our gospel's veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. There's some people who can't see it. The truth is presented plainly and they want nothing to do with it. Elsewhere, Paul will talk about this like being the aroma of death. They, oh, you just want to run away from it. It stinks. I want nothing to do with what Jesus is about and what the church is proclaiming. For others, it's the aroma of life. And they're hungry for that and they respond. And Paul identifies, in fact, that there's another agent at work in verse 4 of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. He's saying there's people, and it's not that they're rejecting us. We don't preach ourselves. We, we, just, we come forward as servants. We're here to serve our community and those around us with the truth of the gospel. And so we hold forth and display to them the glory of Christ. It's it's his message. And yet people have been blinded because that's the work of the God of this age. And you can't blame the messenger and you can't blame the, the message itself or God himself. Calvin speaks about this and he says, you don't blame the son if people, people screw up their eyes to the light. It's not the son's fault. It's the, the receipt of it as people reject it, that aroma of death and push back. And Paul says, look, I know what we do and who we are and the purpose for why we are here as the bride of Christ, his church, to proclaim him. In various ways, we will set forth the truth plainly. It goes on in the next verse to do something really incredible. A number of years ago, I was uh, shown this in a, in a message by, that Ravi Zacharias gave, where he says, be aware of the audience that Paul is addressing. The greatest pursuit in the Hebrew mind is light. And so for the Jews in that context, everything is idealised by light. The Lord is the light of my salvation. The people that have sat in darkness have seen a great light. For the Hebrew, the ideal is light. For the Roman, it's about glory, power. The Roman Empire and the Caesars and the city to which all roads lead. Leave, lead. <laughs> Rome symbolizes glory. Hebrew symbolized by light as their ideal. And the Greeks... Knowledge, the brain, it's about the academy, the sophists and the idea of wisdom, the ideal of knowledge. Hebrew, light, Greek, knowledge, Roman, glory. Three different cultural groups right there. And here's the Apostle Paul. Has he got anything to say to them? Can he relate to them in any way? Is he so distinct and withdrawn from them? Well, no, he's a Hebrew by birth. He's a citizen of Rome and he's in a Greek city. And what does he say to them? God, who caused the light to shine out of darkness, 
has caused his light to shine in our hearts, to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus, our Lord. He just takes target at each one. Bang, bang, bang. Light, knowledge, glory. Where will you find it? Well, you won't find it in the power of Rome. Where will you find the illumination? Not in the Hebrew pursuit. Where will you find, what have I forgotten? Glory? No. Knowledge? Wisdom? Not in the Greek academy. You'll find it in Christ and in Christ alone. He's the answer. And he just contextualized the gospel. Boom. It's powerful. If you want to explore that theme more, can I commend to you Sam Chan's new book called Evangelism in a Skeptical World? He has a really cool little chapter where he explores the idea of the way in which we need to be as both individuals and churches entering in and challenging culture. Not withdrawn, not at an arm's length, but actually entering in and working out those points of contact and then challenging con- um, this, our culture where it has failed to recognise where true truth is found. See, how do we remain true to the gospel and engage with culture that is changing all around us? Well, engagement and resilience. Enter and challenge And how rigid is that and how fixed? Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 22 says, you know what? I've become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. Incredibly fluid and wonderfully powerful. And I want you to think about that for yourself and for your witness, for the way you understand what God's purpose for your life is that you might hold forth the truth plainly tomorrow. Wherever, your family, conversation at work, across the playground, by all possible means. And that people might actually see a transformation in you as you speak that out. Then you might understand and uh, become not only a student of God's word, but also a student of the culture in which we find ourselves. And adapt. Oh, don't change the message, just the method. Now, if I can segue and just help you for a moment to see how some of that thinking informs some of our thinking with some of the reforms that we've been talking about over the last month, particularly in two areas of timing and teaching. To do with the timing of the services... um, you'll be well aware that as of next week, times, they are changing to 9.30 and 5 o'clock. The 9.30 service was arrived at thinking a little bit about our cultural context. Um, And that's recognising that for many people on many days, lots of things start at 9 o'clock. And so it feels like a gift and something of uh, a blessing that on a Sunday you might sleep in and arrive at something a bit beyond 9 o'clock, apparently. And so, enjoy that gift if you're going to be part of the 9.30 service uh, and you can thank us for that extra sleep in. But it also, more importantly, was recognising something else. Because one of the questions is, why don't we just split the difference between 9 and 11 and start at 10? Which it seems like a great idea. Except one of the things we've been very conscious about is how we might increase people's ability to actually share meals with one another, both here and in other places, in your homes, in parks, on the deck, and that when we have services at crossover meal times, it impedes the way that we can do that. Start at 10 o'clock, we'll finish close to 
8.30. It's close to lunchtime. It bangs up against that. Moving it early allows more opportunities for us to be able to do that. In fact, a similar thought uh, was sitting behind the change from 6 o'clock to 5 o'clock, which impacts this room uh, significantly from next week. Uh, Part of that was born out for families, I'll talk about that in a moment, but also from a number of you who are young adults and young workers who are finding our evening service finishing too late. And I just think, well, harden up. But apparently you can't. (laughs) You get home, you're all weary, you're grumpy because you haven't eaten, and then all of a sudden I get it. To be hangry is not godly. And so... And so that recognition, in fact, that when we have services that finish late and then require people perhaps to go and get meals or to go without and then to get ready for your work day, which now involves you waking up earlier and travelling further through hard Sydney traffic, there is a great blessing to be able to move that earlier into the afternoon of a Sunday. Now, we recognise that for a number of people, they've raised a concern, which was mine as well for a long time, about what happens in summertime at five o'clock because we enjoy being in other places in summertime at five o'clock and I want to suggest that that's probably true at six o'clock as well in the summertime. In fact, anything before eight o'clock or 8.30 is probably too early if you'd rather be doing something else. And just at that point, let me encourage you to think about the opportunities that this five o'clock start will afford you in summertime that you've not been able to enjoy before, that there is more time after the service of daylight to return to activities with other people picnics and surfing and walking around the lake hand in hand or other things that you might like to do. I guess I'd also like to say that if church feels at that point like an inconvenience, that it's impeding your day, then that's a good thing. That's a lovely sacrifice to be able to delight in the privilege of gathering. And if that isn't your delight and privilege, then Daniel and Kieran and Travis and myself, I was going to say... Just go to Daniel, he's the most intimidating one amongst us. (laughs) We'd love to chat to you about that. But we really do want to take the opportunity that's afforded to actually do hospitality well and to do fellowship well. That's why we want to go to the effort of gathering before the services at 4.30 and at 9 o'clock in the morning and to remain afterwards and encourage people to carry on the conversations that are begun or that are happening because of the time that we meet. The other thing that five o'clock affords us that we've never had before is the opportunity to, uh, to better be able to connect with young families and provide ministry to kids, as you heard about before. Uh, we found that at six o'clock, it is not possible for young families to stay out that late. And so for the first time, we have that opportunity and we're excited about that. It recognises also that we are in the midst of another baby boom in this church, I think, I don't know if I'm about to out people, 10, I think there's 10 people or something like that that are either, either were pregnant up until a few days ago or are pregnant still, right? That's nuts, but it's terrific. And so we want to be recognising that this is a great opportunity for those families to remain connected to this church family and not tell them to go to the morning or to somewhere else and to be able to, uh, to, able to reach out and serve and to minister them. And it will mean a change and a sacrifice for others. And it might not feel like it is ideal for you, but out of love for your brothers and sisters in Christ, we believe it to be a good and beneficial change. We also think that this gives us greater opportunities to do prayer and care, both before and after the services. You'll hear more about that in future weeks. Timing has actually been informed in part by some of the cultural issues around us and within this church. But so is the teaching. Uh, We have heard and listened well, 
that we have issues with the length of sermon and I'm breaking the rule again tonight. I've just clocked up 31 minutes. But people value brevity, things that are shorter and sharper, and people aren't accustomed to hour-long content delivery. Um, it won't be an hour, trust me. And so, going f- and sorry, and so of those times where I haven't um, been loving and caring for you in that space, I do ask for your forgiveness. In fact, those times have been many. But we will be endeavouring that our sermons will average out at 25 minutes. So some of them are just going to be a minute long, I think, in order to get it down. No, but, but we do want to take that seriously, um, to actually think about the, our content delivery, our capacity to actually absorb information and to do that well. Of course, the challenge is that this ought not be a response to the soundbite culture that we live in. We don't want to be a church that's gospel light, but we do believe that we can be faithful in shorter units. We also want to be committed to seeing that the Word of God is applied concretely to life. Um, One of the things that has shifted in our culture is a movement away from the idea of show me that it's true to show me that it works. So apologetics 20, 30 years ago was all around evidence, demanding you know, a verdict and all those kind of things that would one, win people over to the truth. Now, there's a real expectation about show me a demonstration that this thing that you believe in works. So what we want to ask of each of the preachers and each of the times that we come to God's word is to ask that question that says, so what? That every passage is going to answer a question that connects to the struggle of life. That it's not about mere information, but about transformation. And so please, if you haven't already witnessed that as a value in this place, please expect that into the future. We're beginning a new preaching series as well in the way we structure things. No longer will we be repeating the same sermon across morning and evening, but AM and PM separate series. And starting next week in the morning will be a series in the second half of the book of Romans entitled A New Way of Living, and in the evening a series from Galatians called Freedom, Now What? Why are we doing that? Because these are two great places where we get to hear what God has to say about what it means to be followers of Jesus, living in step and empowered with his spirit in every age, whether it's first century Palestine or whether it's the northern beaches of Sydney today and into every culture. Why? Because the one that we follow is the same yesterday, today and tomorrow. And we hold firmly to that. Despite the fact that times... They are a-changing. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we want to ask that we would be in our lives personally deliberate, on purpose, conforming to the likeness of your Son, allowing your Word and your Spirit and the interactions that we have with one another, all that the church as it gathers might achieve, to be working on that purpose of making us more like Jesus. That the love that we have for you as we gather to worship you and the love that we have for one another would be seen by the world around us, that they would know that we are disciples of you by the love that we have for one another and the love that we have for our neighbours. Lord, would you make us a student of your word as we gather and would you make us a student of our culture as we scatter, that we might be like a city on the hill, proclaiming you, but in the city in which we find ourselves, that we would recognise ourselves to be aliens and strangers, 
but unalienated. Loving those that you have placed us next to. That we might give an answer for the hope that we have. That we might do it with gentleness and respect. And we pray, Lord, that you might watch over your bride. That you might continue to love your church. And that we would be those that would gather to give glory to you. And that we would do it week by week. And in so doing, you would minister to us. Making us more and more, day by day, like your son, conformed to his likeness. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.